Our text this morning is John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This is God's holy word. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Pray with me, friends. Father, we need you today. We need you to convict us and to comfort us. We need you to teach us and to grow us. Father, we are sinners and utterly incapable of seeing your heart if you don't give it to us. We plead for mercy, we plead for forgiveness, and we plead for the presence of your Holy Spirit that we might honor you in your word this day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want to ask you guys a question. We're going to do a little test here to get started. I want you to think about Jesus. Get in your mind a picture, not a physical picture, but a character picture of Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus' attributes, what kind of person he is, what kind of person do you think of when you think of Jesus. And I want you to get that really firmly set in your mind. What are the things, what are the characteristics, what are the character traits you think of when you think of the character of Jesus? Do you have something in your mind? Yes? Thinking about Jesus, his character. Words in your mind that you would use to describe Jesus. Have some of those. Now, what kind of picture do you get in your mind? What kind of person do you think of if I said to you, think about God? And here's the question. And only you will know if this is true. Was there a difference in your thinking? There shouldn't be, but that's not how we work always, is it? The character of God is the character of Jesus, after all. And if your picture in your mind changed, it could be that you have fallen prey to a dangerous kind of thinking that is also very common. Many people in our world today have one picture in their mind when they think about God, especially when they think about God in the Old Testament. And they have a strongly picture, strongly different picture in their mind when they think about Jesus. A lot of people think that in the Old Testament, God is all and only angry and full of wrath. In the New Testament, they think Jesus is all and only about love and sweetness. But John 1.1 reminds us Jesus is God. He is eternally God. Malachi 3 verse 6 God says to us, for I, the Lord, do not change. Listen to me. What Jesus is, God is. 
The character of Jesus is the character of God. The character of God is the character of Jesus. The love of God is the love of Jesus. The wrath of God is the wrath of Jesus. His character never has changed from Old Testament to New, from eternity past to eternity future. And in our passage for today, we're going to watch Jesus The very same Jesus we saw turn water to wine at a wedding feast last week, the same Jesus we saw with love and kindness and joy showing genuine anger. It's perfect anger. It's righteous anger. It's Old Testament anger. It's New Testament anger. It's the wrath of the eternal God when his worship is perverted. So come along with me, watch this unfold. We're going to find three application points as we see Jesus and his zeal for God's glory. Look at verse 12 and 13. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The the Passover of the Jews was at hand, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after the wedding feast, last week's message, Jesus left Cana and Galilee to travel to the seaside town of Capernaum about 16 miles away. He went with his mother and his brothers, which tells you that Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus was born. So uh, keep that in mind as you think of your doctrine of, what, of who Mary is. She is an, a normal human woman, a lovely human woman, woman used by God, but not some sort of perpetual uber saint. She was a lady that had a husband and had kids. Well, soon Jesus is going to move his ministry home base to Capernaum from his hometown in Nazareth. But first... Before he does that, he's going to have to travel to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration because that's required under the Jewish law. Then look at verse 14 through 16. Most of our time this morning spent here. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. When Jesus goes up to Jerusalem here for the first Passover of his public ministry, there's a problem. And it's not a new sight to Jesus. We know that Jesus has been going to Jerusalem for the Passover for at least the last 18 years of his life. So this scene is not new. If you read, by the way, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they will tell you that Jesus responds to the practice in the temple courtyards of selling the animals and changing the money, that he responds to it during the final week of his earthly ministry. The Monday after Palm Sunday, Jesus cleanses the temple. But John is quite clear that this is happening a very short time after the wedding at Cana. That event happened within the first week of Jesus' public ministry when he came back from the wilderness after his baptism. So what do we do with that? We conclude this. Jesus actually drives out the animal sellers and money changers twice 
during his earthly ministry. Once at the beginning and once at the end. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was an interesting historical social tale, right? The first temple was built by whom? Who, who built the first temple? You guys work with me a little bit. Solomon, very good. Solomon did it. He pretty much took the, the things that David had stockpiled and the instructions David had given, and then Solomon ordered, okay, build the temple, and it was built. Then in the year 586 B.C., that first temple was destroyed when the Babylonians took Jerusalem. Well, then, in the year 538 B.C., the Jews returned to the land under the leadership and ministry of Zerubbabel, and they began to work on a new temple, and that new temple was completed somewhere around 515 B.C. under the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. And that second temple that was, that was constructed when the Jews returned to the land, it was physically much smaller, much less grand than was Solomon's temple. It stood on the spot where Solomon's temple had stood, but it paled in comparison. Well, 500 years later, around 20 B.C., there was a man named King Herod. You guys have heard the name King Herod before, haven't you? That's the man who ordered the slaughter of the children of Bethlehem after Jesus was born? Well, that King Herod, 20 B.C., began a renovation project of the Jerusalem temple to enlarge it. In fact, that project that Herod began in 20 B.C. was still ongoing when Jesus visited the temple during his first year of public ministry. The temple renovations that Herod started, he died about 4 B.C., but the temple renovations, they did not finish until around 64 B.C., I'm sorry, 64 A.D., which means the temple renovations finished about six years before the temple was finally destroyed again. And that was done under the Roman general Titus, for you historians out there. Well, the temple under Herod's renovations had some courtyards that you would have to go through if you wanted to go from the outer part of the temple grounds to the inner part of the grounds to the Holy of Holies. The outer court, the, the, the large outer court that was fenced off from the rest was called the court of the Gentiles. And then you would go up some steps and through a gate to get into the court of the women and then further into the court of Israel and then to the court of the priests where the altar of sacrifice actually stood. And during the days of Jesus, that outer court, that, that farthest outside courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, was being used also as a sort of marketplace for the selling of animals and for the changing of money for those who were going to worship in the temple. Originally, that marketplace was outside of Jerusalem. It was, it was just across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. But they moved it to the temple grounds for the sake of convenience. Now, the marketplace, by the way, was sometimes referred to as the name, quote, the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the, the man who served as the leader of the high priestly family. And Annas and his family, they were getting rich off of the religious devotion of the people of Israel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they talk about Jesus doing this at the end of his ministry, Jesus said that time that they had made the temple into a den of robbers. Why do he say that? The people who were selling stuff, 
They were taking advantage of the needs of the people. They were selling animals to, ha- to people at exorbitantly high prices. And they were giving the people of Israel a terrible exchange rate as they changed their money to this, the Tyrian silver coinage that the temple would accept. So think of it like this if you want to imagine what was happening. How many of you have ever bought food in the airport? Is that a good experience or not? Have you ever noticed that a $5 sandwich outside the airport costs what in the airport? 12, 15, right? A $1 bottle of water outside the airport would cost you what? Four, five dollars in the airport? How do they do that to us? Well, the answer is they know we have nowhere else to go so they can gouge us on price. Now, add to that the need to exchange your money. If you had to buy airport tokens to buy the food, and they made your 16 bucks for a sandwich and a bottle of water actually cost you $30, that would give you a sense of what was happening in the court of the Gentiles under Annas' reign as the godfather of the priestly family. So when Jesus makes his way to the temple, this first Passover this first year of his public ministry, Jesus is not pleased at the sight of the bazaar of Annas. This picture, friends, is the Son of God seeing something wrong in a place that was to be set apart for the worship of God. And Jesus takes action. First thing he does, Jesus pauses and takes the time to make his own whip. There would have been ropes. There would have been cords around there for the tying up of the animals. Then Jesus uses that whip to stride through the area of the animal sellers and drive out the sellers and the money changers. Don't let yourself miss the drama of this scene, folks. This was a frightening scene. Jesus was angry, truly, furiously angry. He was never out of control, but his anger was fierce. The crack of that whip, that would have started the cattle moving. The fiery look in the eyes of the Savior moved the men from their stations. And in righteous anger, Jesus shouts at the sellers of birds, Get these birds, get their cages off of the temple grounds. And with fury... The Savior overturns the tables of the money changers and their neatly stacked little coins. Now I want you to imagine this time what must have been the look on the Savior's face. Last week, we saw when we imagined the look on Jesus' face, a man full of love, compassion, a smile, sparkle in his eyes, kindness. This man's laugh, his smile made him the kind of person you wanted at your party. This was a man whose eyes would have just had to just smile and sparkle when he changed the water to wine and he helped a needy couple. But right here, the same man, the same Jesus, has such a look that it would have made you weak at the knees. Jesus was an ordinary-looking person. We know that from Isaiah 52 and 53. The servant's song talks about him being ordinary in appearance. Jesus' height, his frame, his appearance would not have stood out in a crowd in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was no weakling. He had worked as a carpenter. 
So you guys know what it's like to be around guys that have done some manual labor, right? But Jesus wasn't a bodybuilder. He wasn't a pro wrestler. He wasn't a soldier. If Jesus was of average build on his, in his day, he would not have been much taller than five foot five, which would make him shorter than me, by the way. That shouldn't have been funny. Uh, but something about the look on Jesus' face, something about the fierceness of Jesus' anger, there wasn't anybody going to come up and try to stop him. Men, grown men, ran away of a man with a rope. Money changers gathered up their robes and took off. Nobody was going to mess with the furious man wielding the whip. That's Jesus. And here, when Jesus scolds the Jews for their behavior, notice here in this part, he's not even talking about them robbing folks with their airport pricing. All Jesus is telling them is that his father's, that God's house is not supposed to be a place of business. Worship is not about money making. Now, let me again remind you, Jesus hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. The loving Jesus who turned water to wine who rescued a wedding celebration, the Jesus who had little kids run up to him to hug him, that Jesus is the same as the God of the Old Testament who says to us, I am slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And that same Jesus, that same Jesus is the man whose eyes flash with fire as he cracks a whip and turns a bustling marketplace into a ghost town. And this is exactly the same God who said in the Old Testament, I will not acquit the guilty. This is a God whose burning wrath rained down from heaven over Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the same God who said, I will not tolerate your half-hearted sacrifices, O Israel. Jesus is truly God. He's truly man. God is truly loving and truly just. And we neither honor Jesus nor know him well if we depict him as a God of love without wrath or as a God of wrath without love. So, there's the picture. There's the story. Let's take a minute, find a couple of our application points in these verses. Now, understand, when you see these events unfold, you should first and foremost be watching for what John wants you to see about Jesus so you might believe in him because the whole point of John's gospel is that you would truly believe in Jesus and find salvation in his name. But as we see Jesus and the other people in this story doing things rightly, whatever it is, whether it's here or future, we're also going to learn what are the right things we should do too for the glory of God. So our first application point today, our first application point today, keep your worship about God. Point number one is keep your worship about God. It says, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. We can draw a point of application as we see Jesus' motivation for what he's doing right here. Jesus is angry. He's righteously angry because of the marketplace in the temple. The Jews who were selling animals 
who were changing money on the temple grounds, they were distracting from the true worship of God for the sake of their business. Hear what I have to say to you. There is no single greater priority for the life of a human being than the true worship of the living God. You buy that? There is no single greater priority for the life of a human being than the true worship of the living God. Nothing is more important. Worship, truly, faithfully glorifying the Lord who made you, is the reason you exist. Let me add, this is good. If God tells us that's why he created us, then God also has revealed to us the very thing that will fulfill us. There's only one thing that will eternally satisfy your hungry soul, that for which you were created. There is only one thing that will eternally satisfy your hungry soul, and that is the worshiping and glorifying of your God. Blaise Pascal once said to us, The infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. You have an infinite hole in your heart that can only be filled by the eternal God and his worship. Nothing but the worshiping and glory of God is big enough to satisfy your soul. And praise be to God, that is the very thing God commands of us, that we worship him and find the satisfaction our souls deeply desire. How do we know this is what we're supposed to be about? Genesis 1, God says he made us in his image. You exist for the display of the glory of God, magnifying the person and perfection of God. That is worship. Isaiah In Isaiah, the Lord tells us he created humanity for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. We exist for the purpose of displaying the worth and the weight and the value and the perfection of God. That is why you are here. The ultimate end, the ultimate purpose of your life is for the demonstration of the glory of Almighty God. So if I say to you, why do you exist? God's glory is the answer. And I told you this in Sunday school not terribly long ago. True worship involves our reverential acts and submission and homage before God as our king. Those acts can be informal acts of obedience, right? Loving your children in God's name, sharing the gospel, even being a faithful employee in order to keep with the commands of Scripture. All obedience to God's word because you wish to honor God, is worship. And we know that all through Scripture, God has commanded formal acts of worship too, hasn't he? In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was a formal, orderly set of commands for worship. In the New Testament... The commands of the Bible that we sing, that we pray, that we listen to the preached word, that we participate in Lord's Supper, that we baptize, all of these 
are formal acts of worship. They're commanded by God. All of them are God-defined ways for you and me to glorify God, which, as we already said, is the purpose we exist. If then, if then, worship is such a big deal, and it is, if it is vital to our joy, if it is commanded by God, if it is our purpose, we must not allow ourselves to somehow distort the focus of worship. Worship is the most important thing we can ever do, and worship is about the glory of God. May we never make it less. Any lessening of the focus of worship, making worship about something less than God, is an infinite offense to the infinitely holy God. Jesus was angry, and rightly so, because the people of Israel had stopped making worship about the Lord and about the Lord's glory. They made worship about their economic success. They made worship about their convenience. They focused worship on man and not on God, and we must not do those things. So how do you keep worship about God? Just work with me and think a little bit. Here's a few ideas I jotted down. First, obey God's commands. Come to worship. Gather together with the people of God to worship. That is commanded by God. Now, let me say again, in the season of the weird world we're in, there are some people who are at an elevated health risk and therefore are providentially hindered from coming to worship. And if that's how you feel about your situation, you're not the person I'm talking about here, okay? Don't, don't let yourself feel bad if you feel like you need to stay home for your health and safety. That's between you and the Lord. But if you are not being providentially hindered by the Lord from coming to worship because of your health concerns, you need to make being here gathered with the body a priority of obedience to God. That means, for you on YouTube, I'm glad we can provide this for you, but do not use the live stream as a way you can avoid the discipline of gathering. Second, focus. Worship is your life. So see it like that, right? Here's how, how, how do we keep our worship focused on God? We have to see our worship is focused on God. Give your heart to the endeavor of worshiping. Treat worship as the most important thing you can do. Don't come here waiting to be entertained. Don't come here waiting to be impressed. Don't come here looking for me to do something or somebody else to do something just to give you an emotional high. Give you, give your all. You give your very all to focus your mind and your heart on the glory of Almighty God. Guys, that's why, again, I am so, so grateful, again, to our deacons, to the folks who are helping us set this room up and change the way the room looks so that you can think about the Lord and not the distractions. That's what we're trying to do because we want this to be a high priority. Guys, thank you so much. Third, third, Another way to keep worship, keep your, your, work, your worship about God, glor, uh, participate. 
Glorifying God in worship is your number one priority for existence, and that means that you must engage. Even if you're not a natural singer, sing anyway. Sing because God commanded you to sing His glory. Sing because it honors God. And when we read Scripture, read it with heart and with passion. And when we preach, listen and and take notes and respond as the Lord leads. And pray when we pray and pray with all your heart. And fourth, and this this one kind of comes first sequentially, honestly. How about prepare? This is the last idea I had to offer you here. What do you need to do to be ready to worship God on Sunday? You need to pray. You need to go to bed on Saturday so you can get enough sleep if you have the opportunity to do so. Not judging Anthony here. Hey, brother, we love you. Can you imagine, though, telling the God of the universe, the God whose son died for your sins, I just really can't honor you this morning, God, because I'm really sleepy from my all-night video game session or Netflix binge. Do what you can to the best of your ability to arrange your Sunday so that you can get up, get dressed, and travel to gather with us. By the way, try not to be late. Again, would you tell God, God, I generally would like to honor you, but I'm just not willing to put forth the effort to get to church on time. Yes, Lord, I know I can make it to my job on time from Monday through Friday, but this just isn't as high a priority to me. This is the spot where the old country preacher would say, I've stopped preaching and stopped, started meddling in your lives. Listen, I know, I know we all have things happen from time to time that make it hard to be on time or to be prepared for worship. I know that. We have kids that get sick. We have tires that go flat, batteries that go dead unforeseen circumstances that knock us out of our routine. That happens to all of us. Does that happen to you ever, by the way? Okay, it happens. We're all together on that. I'm not here trying to not be understanding. I'm not, certainly not here to try to beat up on some poor mom doing her dead level best to get her kids to church. I appreciate you all like you wouldn't believe. I'm just asking us, to examine ourselves and say, are we showing by how we act, by how we plan, that worship is indeed our number one priority? Do you find it easy not to come to church? Do you find it easy to find something else to do? Do you find it easy to give this less than your best? That's the question. I'm asking you, wrestle with God and God's word on your own and ask him, how do you need to change in your mindset So you see the value of worship and make it your priority. Fair enough? Let's get our second application point now. I kind of snuck four application points in number one, by the way. I feel feel powerful. (laughs) Point number two, keep your anger in check. This is for you who just got mad at me for talking about all that convicting stuff. Keep your anger in check. Look at this, though. This is cool, and this is helpful. 15 and 16, don't want to miss this. And making a whip of cords, it says, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
Ephesians 4.26 says to us, be angry and do not sin. Jesus here was angry and he did not sin. I don't want to miss this here. Jesus took forceful action. Jesus said forceful things, but Jesus never sinned. He never went too far. Now let me point out just a couple things to you about Jesus' anger here that may help you as you think about your anger. Jesus made a whip. That means Jesus did not instantly fly off the handle and snap. He took time to braid some cords together and thought about what he was going to do. He took time to be ready to act. He didn't snap at all. He didn't blow up. When you feel angry, it is a wise thing to take some time before you take action. Take time to think. Take time to breathe. Take time to examine whether or not the action you want to take is actually a godly action. Let me ask you, how many of you have ever said something or acted in a way that you look back and say, if I had just stopped and thought, I probably wouldn't have done that? Any of you? Three of you have. You angry, angry people. The rest of this room is noble. Or they're dishonest. Don't worry about it. You guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? We're all friends here, right? This is normal, isn't it? Slow down. Often it's better for me to shut my mouth before I say the first thing that comes into my head. Jesus made a whip. He didn't make a sword. Does that seem like a good thing? He did not escalate the situation. Jesus did not go through the room, you know, like some sort of, you know, fantasy action film lopping off arms and stuff. When you are angry, it is a powerful human temptation to ratchet up a conflict to the next level. You know what I'm talking about? But God's word has always called us, do not escalate matters. Even the Old Testament concept of an eye for an eye, remember those verses? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot. All of that law was about preventing people from punishing an offense with something harsher than the offense. This is the biblical understanding of we're not the guys that say, you put one of ours in the hospital, we put one of yours in the morgue. Jesus did what? He drove out the animals, but he didn't kill the animals. You notice that? Jesus turned over the tables. He did not steal the money. Jesus commanded the bird sellers to get the birds out of there. He did not release the birds to fly away and never be found again. And in all of those things, we see that Jesus, though righteously angry, did not steal or destroy the property of others. Can you guys draw an application in our current culture? Christians, being angry, even being righteously angry, never gives us the right to steal or to destroy the property of others. Now, one more verse of scripture. Jesus' actions are going to bring something back to the disciples' minds and we'll get our third application point. The third application point is expect persecution expect persecution verse 17 his disciples remember that it was written zeal for your house will consume me 
also has to wonder when thinking of this event, what the looks on Jesus' disciples' faces must have been when he was doing and saying what we just read. It was maybe a week ago. These guys were all smiling with Jesus at a wedding feast, and he turned the water to wine, and I was like, hey, good job. We, Jesus, you're great. Now they are seeing Jesus in the single most sacred place they've ever known, causing the most dramatic scene they've ever seen. The actions of the Savior made the disciples remember something from the Psalms, actually. Psalm 69, verse 9 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. If you know Psalm 69, and I'm not expecting you to have this one in your heads, it's a psalm of David, and in it, the psalmist is facing persecution. Enemies are going after David and trying to hurt David without cause. And in verse 9 of Psalm 69, one of the reasons that people are are going after David for, one of the things they're using against David is his devotion to the worship of God. You might recall that Daniel experienced something very similar. In Daniel chapter 6, jealous government officials saw how devoted Daniel was to prayer and they used that devotion as a way to try to get the king to have Daniel put to death. By the way, risky point here, but you know, in our modern social media culture, there would be a whole lot of Christians who would condemn Daniel for being so arrogant as to continue to pray with his windows open when the government said, stop praying. Daniel willingly prayed knowing that it would be seen. The disciples... Remember Psalm 69.9, they see what Jesus was doing and they, re- they realize that true zeal, true passion for the worship of God, well, that turns people against David. But they also knew that this was a prediction for the Messiah. True zeal, true passion, true commitment to the worship of God is a thing that's going to get the Messiah in trouble with the political powers of his day. Guys, in his teaching, what does Jesus predict? Do you guys honestly think Jesus predicts the world is going to like us more and more? Do you see that in the New Testament? There is a prediction always from the Savior of a widening gap, a widening division between those who love God and those who hate God. As time goes by, people are either going to be more committed to the Lord or more devoted to opposing the Lord. The middle ground goes away. The gospel is going to spread. We know that. People from all nations around this globe are going to be saved. We know that. The kingdom of God will never fail. But as the gospel spreads, the world is going to become more deeply hateful toward the church. Do you guys understand that that is what you are sitting in being ready for? Do you understand that's in front of you? John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Paul adds in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The more zeal you have, the more zeal I have for the worship of God, the more we make worship our number one priority, the more we find our joy in the glory of God, the more the world around us is going to turn against us. How many places could I point you to where it's happening? Again, if you watch your news, if you watch your internet, you see that a pastor in Canada is jailed and told he can only be released if he agrees no longer to preach because he's not following his government's standards. But understand this. If you want to be like Jesus, zeal for the house of God, for the people of God, for the church of God, for the worship of God, passion for the worship of God will consume you too. If it consumed Jesus and you want to follow Jesus, it's got to consume you too. Passion to magnify God will put you on the wrong side of history according to the new media. Love of the things of God are going to be things that the world will use to ridicule you. Your devotion to the obedience to the commands of God are things the world will try to use to disrupt your life. But find hope. The Lord's not going to lose, guys. Even if the world comes after you to do you harm, Jesus Christ is and will remain victorious. Christ's church is going to grow. God's kingdom is going to come. Yes, expect persecution, but know that no persecution, not from man, not from government, not from demon, not from anything else, can ever defeat our holy God. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor a height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The picture, guys, that we've seen today of Jesus is intense. Jesus loves his Father. Jesus is passionate about the worship of God. And we should have the same love and the same zeal. So let's pray that God will help us to focus on him in worship and live to give him glory. Now let me ask you, does this concept bring you any sting of conviction? I hope it does. Not because I want to be mean to you, but it's good for us to be called to examine our lives and to repent and to worship our Lord.
Can I offer you a word of hope? Conviction is good. Repentance is good. And I want you to keep hold of this. But I also want to say this to you. I don't want you to think, Christian, I'm not trying to paint a picture for you of a God who is eternally mad at you, disappointed in you, cranky with you, angry at you. Because if you truly have Jesus, if you've truly been forgiven by God's grace through faith in Jesus, the anger that God has for your sin has been satisfied. When Jesus died on the cross for your sin, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for your sin. Sometimes we speak about the sacrifice of Jesus. We use the word propitiation. You guys have ever heard the word propitiation before? That's a word that means that Jesus took the anger of God for our sin and he died as a sacrifice to take that anger away and he leaves you in a place. He leaves you in a place where God has now love and kindness for you. Guys, that's one of the most wonderful concepts in the gospel. We have earned the judgment of God for our sins, haven't we? Can you honestly sit here and say after hearing about the passion that Jesus has for the worship of God that you've ever given your all to worship? Not like we should, have we? Jesus died to take the judgment for that upon himself. And because God the Father perfectly punished God the Son for every sin that's ever going to be forgiven, we know that now what God has is infinite mercy and unbounded love for those in Christ. So Christian, listen to me. Rest in the love of God for you. But do not dare use the love and mercy of God as an excuse to continue in sin. Examine yourself to see if indeed you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, rejoice in the grace of Christ that's there for you, even as the conviction causes you to repent. Not to repent because you're afraid of an angry, angry, mean-spirited God, but to repent because you deeply desire to honor the God who would satisfy his own anger by sacrificing his son to save your very soul. Rejoice in the fact that God calls you to glorify him and focus your life and your worship on our glorious God. And if there's some way that you're hearing this and you've never come to Jesus for salvation, I would urge you this morning, if you want the grace I just talked about, you've got to turn from sin and trust in Jesus as your only hope. You've got to believe in Jesus and ask him to be your savior. And then you will be able to find the purpose for your life the true purpose of your life, which is to develop a zeal for the worship and glory of your God. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, even now, even now I think of the, the call on our lives to worship you with everything we've got. And I plead with you, Lord, help us to do it. Give this body zeal for your glory. Help us think Help us love. Help us have gratitude. Because indeed our Savior is our only hope.
Oh, Lord, don't lighten up the conviction if we need it, where we need it. But don't let us see judgment without grace. Help us to be people who love our holy God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.